Hello, I'm Katie Jarvis. This week, Real Foot Forward is made possible by our friends at Final Flight Outfitters, the family-owned outdoor store that has all the apparel and outdoor equipment you need for your next hunting or fishing trip. Visit finalflight.net for more information. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Scott Williams, and we have a really special episode of Real Foot Forward today. We're at the Tennessee Farm Bureau Annual Meeting. We're going to talk with farmers and others working in agriculture who are here today. So I'm here with Valerie, who just gave me some very cool rub to put on beef in July because July is beef month in Tennessee. I've got Valerie here. Welcome, Valerie. Thank you. So tell us what what you do for a living. Well, I work for the Tennessee Beef Industry Council, and I represent cattle producers across the state and help them market their product beef. So that's why you got the spice rub. That's a fun uh, gig. You also have some cool t-shirts over there. I do. I'm also representing the Beef Foundation today, and we do have a few shirts to sell. Well, I'm going to go buy one. Um, (laughs) so, So how did you get into the agriculture business? Oh, gosh. Um, Well, when I was younger, I grew up in a small rural area in North Alabama, and I had a lot of friends who uh, came from a farming background, and I spent a lot of time with them on their farms, just hanging out, riding horses, you know, all that kind of good stuff, fun stuff, and just really appreciated that way of life. And um, as I grew up and went to college, I went to the Land Grant University uh, in Alabama, which is Auburn University, yep. and graduated in um, human sciences. Okay. So uh, very consumer focused, and um, worked with the Extension Service was my one of my first jobs. And from there, I moved on to the Alabama Cattlemen's Association, which does cattlemen's work, and then they also do the beef checkoff work. And then there was a position open here in Tennessee, and about 20 years ago, I applied and um, got the job and have enjoyed working with our Tennessee cattle producers ever since. Fantastic. So um, agriculture is um, an industry that is just like all the other industries changing and evolving. And, you know, what are the biggest changes that you've seen working with beef from that back then all the way to today? Well, I think that one of the most important things that I've seen that is a difference is uh, the way cattle producers are able to share their story. Um, We have a lot more tools now with social media and um, just like this podcast that didn't exist 20 years ago, really. Um, So this is a wonderful tool that producers have. Um, to share their story, to tell the truth about agriculture, how they raise their crops, how they raise their animals, and how we care for the land as um, really the first, you know, stewards of the land. So um, I think that um, that's one of the big changes that I've seen. Yeah, I've loved if you uh, get on like YouTube or if you search just a little bit on agriculture, you start looking up things like that, all of a sudden your feed is just filled with agriculture videos and posts. And it's incredible how so many farmers and folks who work in that business have embraced social media and are using it to, you know, there's some incredibly entertaining Mm -hmm. um, videos out there that people 
um, are doing and then just the photography, the skills, the way people are applying yes. photography on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Some of the, you know, it's really incredible. Yeah, that's actually one of the main tools that we use with the Beef Industry Council in the checkoff work that we um, share with consumers is we have a registered dietitian. She's also very, uh, well, we have several folks in our office that are very uh, keen on social media and they keep our Instagram and our uh, Facebook pages up to date with a lot of factual information about beef and the different nutritive values that it has for your body as well as the way cattle producers raise the animals and um, just all of the different resources that we have to share with consumers. That's a perfect platform to get that information out. What do, you, what do you think are the biggest misunderstandings from just general folks who are just walking into the grocery store with absolutely no background in agriculture? What are some of the misunderstandings that they might have? I think sometimes a general consumer who may not have that ag or farming background may uh, have some mis misperceptions about, uh, especially in my work, which is uh, uh, cattle, about the way that cattle producers care for their animals. Um, animal welfare, I think, is one of the largest misconceptions. You know, cattlemen depend on their animals. They take excellent care of them. They doctor them when they're sick, just like we would doctor our, you know, family members. Um, they, um, have, they have a special, I guess, a special personality about them, the cattle producers. You know, they are very... Um, grounded in their responsibility to take good care of their land that uh, they were uh, are, are the stewards of for the time that they're here. Um, and I think it's very important to them to leave it in better condition, the land and, and the animals and the, their, you know, their farming uh, operation, um, leave it in better shape than when they started it or when they inherited it because it is only 2% of Americans farm. Right. And even and most people are three and four generations removed from people who farmed. So people really have a complete absence of knowledge. You know, we've been working on an exhibit at Discovery Park on agriculture. And so we've been doing a little research. And um, as we, as, as just as an, as an individual, as I drive around now and see cows, I have a whole different understanding of you know what stage they're at you know in the development right, and right. so knowledge i think is a crucial thing that as a as a, a consumer of food uh, i myself and and um you know everybody else needs to know you know where does this food come from how did it get here what what are the challenges of trying to uh feed fuel and clothe people for the next you know two or three generations so um, I applaud the work that you guys are doing. Um, what What do you feel like is um, your best tool to try to educate the public now? Well, I think that you cannot beat one-on-one -on -one conversations, mm -hmm. whether that's us talking and mm -hmm. the consumers, the people that this podcast will reach and inform, just sharing the facts about production, whether it's animal animal production or crop production. I think there seems to be just a disconnect, as you mentioned before, you know, several generations removed from the farm. People don't understand why we do things the way we do. And um, as far as sustainability goes, you know, we wouldn't have 2% of the people farming if they weren't sustainable. Right. Um, so they've done things 
in a sustainable way for a long time and just maybe didn't even realize it. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, and and everybody can always improve on what they're doing. So um, I think that our newer generation are very um, active and they want to know how to do things better and differently and um so I guess continuing to educate themselves and educate the consumer about why why and how we, we raise animals and crops. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. It's really interesting. I love all the work you guys are doing. Thank you. I love your giveaway, and I also love your T-shirt. So thank I'll get you. over there and buy one in just a minute. Thank you. So now I'm here with Ryan. Ryan, welcome to Real Foot Forward. T- tell us a little bit about uh, what you do. So I'm the executive director of the uh, Tennessee 4-H Foundation, or the uh, nonprofit arm of uh, Tennessee 4-H. Well, that's fun. Okay, so let's back up. Uh, what what got you interested in, assuming at some point you got interested in agriculture? Did you grow up on a farm? Is that your background? So yeah, we grew up on a, uh, me and my brothers, we grew up on a, a small, really hobby farm, um, Hereford cattle. We, we did some sheep for 4-H. And, and for uh, anybody who doesn't know what a hobby farm is, what, what exactly is that? <laughs> it's a farm where you lose money. <laughs> uh, it was just, uh, it was more about the lifestyle and the experience than, than actually having um, a, a for-profit agricultural enterprise. And so you had cattle? Yeah, so we, we had cattle, sheep, and, uh, and hogs. The hogs and sheep were mainly just for 4-H. Okay, okay. And so you, I'm assuming, uh, where, where did you say this was? We actually were in East Roan County, okay. uh, Loudoun County right there at the county line. Okay, and so did you, uh, were you involved like in school growing up in different agriculture organizations? Yeah, I was, I was very active in 4-H as a young person. Uh, started in fourth grade, went all the way through, and never left. So as a fourth grader, you go into 4-H. A lot of people who are listening right now have no idea what 4-H even is. They've never even heard of it before. So as a fourth grader, you're going in. What was your experience? What did you do as a fourth grader in 4-H? So my my experience was similar to most of the other fourth graders in Tennessee. 4-H has a strong in-school club presence. Um, So we actually see most of the, the fourth grade classrooms across the state. And, so it uh, starts in the fourth grade. Yes, sir. Okay. Um, and it, just like most, my 4-H agent, uh, Amy Powell, and now Amy Powell-Peterson was my 4-H agent. And uh, came to school one day, and, and we were hooked. And what are the 4-Hs? Head, heart, hands, and health. Okay. And wh- what what is the meaning of that? Why are there 4-Hs? And a clover. <laughs> <laughs> so th- I actually don't know the story behind the clover, to be okay. truthful. Okay. Uh, so it's about improving the person from your hands to your heart, your health, um, all that. It's about making a, a holistic individual in the 4-H program. There's another uh, youth-oriented agriculture program that forces the students to wear corduroy jackets <laughs> in the summertime. I never understood that rule. Do you guys have anything uncomfortable they have to wear? So we don't have the jacket, but we have a, our 4-H Congress sweater. Okay. Um, so we, we make the young people at our 4 Congress event in Nashville every spring. They have a, a sweater. Uh, they're actually a lot more comfortable than they used to be. They used to be heavy wool, but now, now the cotton. So um, much much better for the kids. They like them a lot better now. So um, did 4-H, was it uh, mostly classroom learning or was it also hands-on? Do you, or Not was. Do, do you now <laughs> currently still, is there hands-on type type education? Absolutely. Even, even most of our classroom activities or hands-on learning, uh, but the, really the classroom experience is to build on to eventually getting youth into our community-based clubs where we have project group meetings and 
honor club and, and all those kind of activities for, for youth as they get more and more engaged. Now, um, you know, a very teeny tiny percentage of people actually go into agriculture, you know, after school, you're the exception in that you're working in this side of agriculture. You know, what, what changes have you seen um, amongst the students from when you were in the fourth grade to today? Are they more educated about agriculture, less educated? You know, what are you seeing? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I would say it's going both ways. The kids that know about ag know more about ag than, than we did growing up. And the folks who have no experience with agriculture largely know even less. It's, so I'm thinking we're, we're growing apart. And so what, what exactly is your job? What do you do for 4-H? So I'm actually the, the fundraiser, so to speak. So I, I manage the private dollars that are raised on behalf of 4-H to help put on our events, uh, handle the donor aspect of it and all that. So you're kind of in development. Yes. Um, and would you say, I mean, I'm guessing just based on what little I know that that there is a lot of interest today in agriculture and with it being such a big part of the American economy, with it being such a big um, part of the future of all of us, I'm guessing there's a lot of interest. Um, Are you finding that to be the case? Yeah. So actually one of the interesting things I've seen, especially over the last five or 10 years is that we have a lot of 4-H'ers that come from inner city or suburbia that have gained an appreciation and are actually pursuing uh, employment in the agricultural field that, that really would have had no experience before with uh, agriculture outside of 4-H. So Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I, I know that there's a lot of emphasis now on STEM. There know? is. And so um, science is part of agriculture or agriculture is part of science. So, you know, th- I, I'm hoping that when educators are, are teaching STEM that they are incorporating agriculture. Is that happening or so I, I know from our standpoint we, we always talk about we've been doing stem for 100 years we just didn't mm. call it stem yeah so from our start of 100 ish years ago uh, we've been teaching 4-hers it started off pretty simple like animal husbandry crops that kind of thing but uh you know we have we have some counties now that are really getting into it uh, uh robotics is becoming a big mm. thing for us yeah uh, at discovery park we have like a robotics camp, you know, it's a big, it's a big deal right now. So we have some county 4-H programs doing the competition uh, circuit, but most of it's just educational. Uh, we also have uh, another thing that's becoming popular in some of our areas is uh, is teaching kids how to use and operate drones and how that could have. Oh a, yeah, you know, that's on my Christmas list. This year. <laughs> I want a drone. It, it could have some commercial application for them after after graduation. And right. So it gives them another avenue to explore. So that's, well, I know that farmers are actually checking on their crops with drones. They're actually checking on their livestock. You know, instead of having to get in the truck and drive, you know, out through the middle of a field, they're actually using a mm-hmm. drone, you know, to get out there. So that's really interesting. Um, what um, if anybody out there is listening and they have young folks, they want to get them involved in uh, agriculture. You know, what's your, what's your suggestions? What's your advice to them? Definitely get them involved in 4-H and FFA. Um, we start in fourth grade for 4-H, so reach out to your local county extension office, and you can go to extension.tennessee.edu and find your local extension office there, or you can go to 4-h.tennessee.edu and, and learn more about 4-H. And are there 4-Hs in all states? So, yes, uh, 4-H is in every state. It's a little different in every state. Okay. Um, uh, here in Tennessee, we're in all 95 counties. So oh, okay. It's out there for you to take advantage of. Excellent. Well, thank you for uh, being here um, and talking to us a little bit about agriculture. No, no problem. I appreciate it. 
So I'm here with Dale. Welcome, Dale. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about uh, your role in agriculture. Yes, I'm the executive director for the Tennessee Poultry Association, and I represent the companies and the growers, the farmers, all across the great state of Tennessee. That's interesting. So let's back up. Um, Did you grow up on a farm? I did. I grew up in Bedford County, which is where I live uh, uh, now. And uh, I grew up with uh, cattle and horses and uh, was very active in 4-H and FFA. Went to MTSU to school. Uh, You're a Tennessee guy. Yeah, yeah. But I moved away for a number of years and I came back. uh, When I came back... I started working for the Tennessee Poultry Association. And, and were you working originally, were you working, like when you went to college, were you, what was your major? Uh, animal science. And okay. then I went to graduate school in Kentucky. And okay. uh, I'm really a horse guy. Oh, okay. And uh, so my expertise is really with horses, uh, uh, horse management, e- uh, reproduction. And, uh, and I taught a number of years. I taught at NC State okay. in North Carolina and then at Murray State. And did you and work it, with uh, like racehorses? I did when I was in Kentucky, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah that's really neat stuff. Uh, when I was a graduate student, uh, I was involved with a, a mare that sold for $4 million and Wow. Uh, uh, one of the farms I worked on, uh, a foal was insured for a million dollars the moment it was declared alive. And that was really neat, and that's the industry I thought I wanted to be in. Yeah, well, there's a lot of romance around that industry. When you look at, like, movies and TV, and the, mm. the public perception is that it's, you know— Got a golden hue to it. Uh, yes, but it's kind of uh, it's kind of in its own uh, world. You know, those that are uh, uh, those that can afford to race or get involved in that industry. So it's not as uh, widespread. Uh, I grew up with the quarter horse industry, and uh, you know, grew up in 4-H and more of the local type horse showing, and uh, and really that's where my love and passion was. Yeah, I, yeah. my uh, dad raised horses and showed them. And so when I was a little kid, he showed quarter horses. Yeah. So we would go to horse shows, and it never really gelled with me, but he would set me on a quarter horse and, you know, in the little kid's category. Yeah. You know, and the horse knew what to do. I didn't have to do anything. So it just, you know, and then they'd have to bring it into the middle and rotate. Oh, it's, uh, yeah, I ended up judging horse shows all over the U.S. I've even judged overseas. I've I've judged uh, over 300 horse shows and world championships. Shows really, really need a lot of neat opportunity. You know, I, I love uh, any kind of a niche um, mm-hmm. industry like NASCAR or mm-hmm. horse worlds mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. the world of Elvis Presley fans. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's uh, people are passionate about whatever they're interested in. Oh, most definitely. Yeah, most definitely. So that uh, what I usually get asked a lot is, uh, how did I end up from horses uh, into poultry? And uh, That's where I was headed. Yeah, you bet. And uh, uh, I was in North Carolina. I was managing a large uh, uh, the, the state fair horse show arena there, and I'd had my affiliation with the university. And uh, my parents were getting older, and uh, I was wanting to get my kids back to rural America. I was missing Tennessee. My parents were getting older, needing help at the farm. and. Mm-hmm. And so made the move, and then it just kind of fell into fell into place. My predecessor and I had come up through the 4-H program together in 4-H, and she was looking to step down from that position for other opportunity and asked me if, if I wanted to do that. And I said, well, I, I don't have poultry expertise, but I had a lot of university and extension uh, uh, expertise, and that's really what I do. I'm not a subject matter expert on poultry, 
But I uh, do a lot of programs. I do a lot of advocating, go to Nashville. We work on everything from legislation to helping farmers locally with issues. Uh, and so uh, I was able to take the, my background in university work, outreach, just my desire to help people help farmers. Uh, well, you, you picked an area about which there's a ton of uh, misunderstanding or lack of knowledge, or most people, when they think about chicken, they see it at the grocery store already or wrapped up in plastic, or they order it at a restaurant, or they, you know, get in the drive through line, order a chicken biscuit, you know, it, but a lot goes into getting that chicken to that point. What are, what are some of the misunderstandings that people have? Yeah, and I, I greatly appreciate that very much. Uh, one of the biggest misunderstandings, uh, there are absolutely no hormones or added steroids given to chickens. And um, uh, poultry today is uh, a much larger bird, a meatier bird, but that's a result of selective genetics, optimized nutrition and management. And so uh, there, there is truthfully no hormones, no steroids added. They're not genetically modified. Uh, again, it's, pure, it's purely from selection. And it's really neat. It's a very honorable uh, industry, and it's amazing uh, what they do. A lot of people driving down the road, they see a chicken house that's closed up, and they think, okay, what are they hiding? What are they doing in there that they don't want people to see? And that's not the case. Um, they're uh, controlling the environment. Uh, the environment is kept in there very nicely, very consistently at the temperature and airflow. And also uh, a big part is uh, disease prevention. And so those birds are in there so that everything can be controlled. Biosecurity is taken very seriously. You can't just walk onto those farms and go into those houses because there's the risk of carrying some organisms in there that could... Uh, that could be, uh, you know, very damaging. And these uh, these folks have invested a great amount of money in in these chickens. Oh, absolutely! It can ruin their entire life if they, yeah. you know, if they lose a whole crop. Yeah, a whole flock. flock. Uh, yeah, there you a go. flock. Uh, the average uh, poultry farm uh, in Tennessee has about four houses. And to build those houses, you're looking at about $1.2 million. Wow. Uh, so anywhere, in, in even toward 1.6, some of the newer houses are even toward 400000 or a little bit more for each one. So, yes, it is a huge investment, and they take all of that very seriously. And they come as chicks. Yes, yes, freshly hatched chicks. Tennessee is very unique in that we have a very uh, we have a very huge uh, presence in the uh, genetics uh, of the broiler industry. We have companies that are here called Aviagen and Cobb Vantress, and uh, and then also Hubbard, which is now owned by Aviagen. But Aviagen and Cobb supply 98 percent of the world's broiler genetics, and broilers are the meat chickens that we eat, and so. Uh, all of that is not done in Tennessee, but Tennessee has a very huge presence of those companies. We have, we have uh, uh, operations for those companies that have pedigree divisions where they're selecting the next generation of ideal bird, and they're looking at traits that are optimal for animal welfare, birds that are more disease-resistant, uh, birds that will perform, uh, convert feed, more efficiently, so it's a really neat process, and that goes through 
generations. Um, it takes about four years from that point to getting to the point of the bird that we eat. Mm. There's no genetic modification. There's nothing being done to those birds. It's purely selection. Uh, now, I think I think one thing a lot of people don't really know about or understand is the fact how much food is going to have to be generated, mm-hmm. you know, in the coming generations, how the population mm-hmm. of the world, and so the work that, that's being done in Tennessee and with, mm-hmm. with other poultry is going to really contribute to ongoing innovation that's going to help feed people um, ongoing. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean I know that you guys are anti-people who just have chickens at their house, you know? Well, Yes, that's a very that's a very good question. Uh, in my position, I work strictly with the commercial, uh, the integrated system, as we call it. We know there are a lot of backyard chickens, a lot of small flocks, and and we don't knock that. Um, it's not something though that we can just outright encourage because with birds that are kept outside, there's a risk of disease, uh, and so we take our concern is. Uh, our concern is any flock that might not be having optimal uh, disease prevention because a, dis- a disease or something that happens in a small flock down the road mm. could end up affecting the uh, entire industry. Wow. Uh, and in Tennessee, the, uh, the poultry industry is over a $7 billion economic impact, direct and uh, indirect impact. And so, yes, we, uh, we welcome everybody. Everybody's welcome, but it's not something that we actually promote. I should probably know this, but I don't, so I'm going to ask it anyway. Do, do, can just anybody go buy some chickens and have them in their backyard, or there, do you have to register them? Or? No, uh, there are some cities that might have ordinances. Gotcha. Uh, so if you're within a, an urban area, uh, and, and that's something you might see in the news around Nashville or yeah. uh, uh, on uh, what's allowed or not, even even where I am there in Bedford County, the the town there that's even come up in a city meeting, uh, and uh, uh, but unless there's a local ordinance, there's nothing to pre- prevent somebody. All the you know there's there's ways to do it. People have been doing that forever. We we get challenged a lot about raising the birds in these houses in the manner that we do. And animal welfare is taken very, very seriously. It's closely monitored. Many of these operations are even audited by a third party to ascertain that everything is as it should be. And, uh, uh, and so a lot, a lot goes into that. And sometimes I get challenged to hear somebody state that they don't like that. And it's like, well, uh, you know, if you want to go raise your own, have your own backyard flock, that's fine. Uh, with the number of farms, with the 50,000, 60,000 farms in Tennessee, every, every farm would have to raise something like 640 chickens wow. to supply what we're doing, yeah. you know, as an industry. Right. And so the commercial industry is not just helping feed Tennessee, but the U.S. and even, even globally. Right. And right. About, uh, about 17% of the poultry produced in the United States is exported. So trade is really important to... You to bet. farmers. Oh, absolutely. Has absolutely. the, has the uh, embargoes in China been impacting Tennessee chicken farmers? Uh, not directly. The, they do the companies. The, the companies that operate within Tennessee are national companies, the Tysons, the Pilgrims, the Cook Foods, uh, uh, Purdue, Keystone Foods. They're, they're, they're national companies. Some even have an international 
presence. And so there's always a way to meet uh, demands when, when you're structured that way. But uh, the, the opening up of uh, China now allowing poultry to, uh, to come in, that, that definitely helps. And, and where it probably helps the most, uh, and you know, right now with the, Amer- with the African swine fever disease that's going on in Asia, China, uh, that's, uh, you know, knocking out roughly half of their uh, swine population, mm. uh, that's huge opportunity for beef and chicken here in the United States. But it's not just something you apply, you know, you supply overnight. They've mm. been wiped out, mm. you know, basically overnight or, you know, over a period of weeks and months. And it takes a whole lot to ramp up that production. And so you would think, oh, we could sell them a lot of chicken. Theoretically, you could, but we don't have it. Oh, wow. Yeah, we don't have a surplus of chicken. And to ramp up to those kind of numbers would take years. And by the time you would get ramped up, they'll have their swine fever under control. And they're, they're predicting in four or five years the, the hog population should be back uh, to where it needs to be in China. And we want to make yeah. sure that doesn't happen to us. Can you imagine? Oh, it'd be, it'd be unreal. And I uh, would like to point out our, our Department of Agriculture, uh, Dr. Samantha Beatty is our state veterinarian. Our current uh, agriculture commissioner, Dr. Charlie Hatcher, mm-hmm. he was formerly our state veterinarian. And he was, uh, he's incredible in Tennessee, has uh, is been very proactive. We actually had the bird flu uh, in Tennessee in 2017, uh, and we had it on a couple of farms, and, and the state veterinarian's office, Dr. Hatcher, had a plan in place. Uh, it got addressed, got eradicated immediately. Wow. And the uh, USDA um, uh, is, uh, there's a lot that goes into that kind of prevention, and they're, they're doing, they're taking proactive measures right now to make sure that ASF stays out of the U.S., at some point it very well could hit, but we're very confident that should it, there's a, there's a plan in place to, you know, to, to nip it in the bud and keep it from spreading or being a problem like it is in Asia. It's, it's just gotten out of control over there. Yeah. And now it's in all the surrounding counties, uh, countries, mm-hmm. and, and they don't have the great USDA and uh, Tennessee Department of Agriculture like we do here in some of those countries, may even be third world countries, and they're certainly not prepared, you know, to combat uh, disease in that fashion. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what do you think people most need to know about our food in the United States that they don't know? Uh, they need to trust their farmers. Uh, that's the big thing. We're more and more generations removed from the farmer, and I really appreciate that that question uh, and it goes back to like uh, when somebody drives down the road and they see a closed up chicken house and they're wondering what's going on everything ideally is going on animal welfare is optimized the bird health the environment the feed the nutrition uh, and 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 then know with confidence there's no steroids no hormones they're illegal they've been illegal for about 50 years they're not needed, if, even if they were legal. They're not needed in, uh, in our industry. Uh, and so trust your farmer, and that goes with all crops. Uh, GMOs are not bad. Uh, if they were, they wouldn't be allowed. Uh, pesticides are necessary. They're essential to produce what we do. And if we're going to feed 
you know, nine and a half to 10 million people by 2050, it takes that kind of accelerated and improved upon agriculture to reach that. Somebody that wants to have poultry in their backyard, you know, raising a few chickens, maybe supplying eggs to some neighbors, that's all great, but it doesn't feed the community. It probably doesn't feed their family. Right. And it certainly doesn't feed the community or beyond. And so unless we all want to go back to how it was in the, the earlier settler days when everybody did raise their own food, right. then uh, you've got to trust the, the farmer. The Department of Agriculture provides great oversight. USDA, the Food Safety, FSIS, uh, it's very closely regulated, and, and they do a great job, and we're, we're way above other countries, you know, way, way above other countries. And I, I, simply, to say, I simply say to somebody that really wants to confront me on that, uh, hey, you're, you're free to go raise your own. <laughs> you know, if, if you don't trust the farmer, right. if, you, if you don't trust what you're buying at the store, right. uh, then, hey, go, go raise your own. So you yeah. guys have a you guys have a, a great website that I know is used. Thank uh, you. If somebody wants more information about um, mm-hmm. chicken farming, I mean, down to you guys have hours and hours and hours of video and lots mm-hmm. of content on there. Where do they go to find mm-hmm. out more? Well, we're at tnpoultry.com. And then, uh, and then we're tied in. We're the state affiliate for the U.S. Poultry Association. And then uh, the, the really great website is through the National Chicken Council. Uh, and you can look up uh, chickencheckin.com. And that's the great resource for all the information, the factual information, the scientific-based information. And, and just as uh, final comments, if you will, there's a lot of information on the internet. You know, I know nothing about uh, nuclear physics, but if I wanted to, I could go create a blog and proclaim to be an expert, and I could look some things up and start uh, putting information out there. I could start putting opinion, uh, and it may or may not be correct. And so just, uh, you know... Uh, any of anybody that's listening that is uncertain, not sure what to believe or not, just you know, check out your references, know your source. I, I used to teach at university level. I've had people tell me, oh, that's not true. You just say that because you work for them. And that's not the case. None of us, right. none of us misrepresent right. our industries. If it was a dishonest industry, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't work for them. But, yeah. but it's a very, very honorable industry, the poultry industry is, and all of agriculture. So, uh, yeah, social media, the blogs can have you confused, can be misleading. Are they truthfully the expert? And if you got a question, ask me. And if you don't believe me, I'll send you to the right source. Excellent. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing with us today. It's really been fascinating. Yeah, thank you very much. Y'all do awesome work. Looking forward to your uh, exhibit thank next you. October. Appreciate that. Yes, sir. So I've got Andrew Melton here with me. Welcome, Andrew. Hey, thank you. Glad to be here. So tell us what you do. So uh, I work with the Farm Credit Mid-America. We're a member-owned cooperative who provides uh, financial services to help uh, rural America and agriculture and uh 
sustain our communities. Oh, that's excellent. So yes. let's back up a little bit. Yeah. So what's your background? Where did you come from? So I grew up in uh, Henderson County on a small farm, and my father actually worked for uh, Farm Credit as well. Oh, wow. And uh, went to school at the University of Memphis and got my degree in finance. That's and where I went. Did you? My degree was in journalism. Oh, right? okay. Well, yeah. hey, go Tigers, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I was 89. Okay. So. Yep, yep. 2002. Yeah, so, excellent. Awesome. Very nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you, uh, what was your, your degree was what? Finance. Finance. Finance yeah. Okay. And did you know you wanted to get back into the agriculture arena or? I, I, I did. Uh, I wanted to be a, a, a work in the finance area, banking, uh, lending. And uh, I tell you, farm credit just really hit the sweet spot for me. Okay. So love numbers. And how long ago? Uh, right at 16 years. Oh, yep. wow. Okay. Yep. So Congratulations. Farm, That's yep. great. With Farm Credit for 16 years. So agriculture is one of the biggest uh, businesses in American economy. That's right. And it is a business. That's correct. So you're the perfect person to talk about agriculture and the business of agriculture. Right. Um, a, lot of, a lot of our listeners, a lot of Americans are like me. We think our food comes from Walmart, and that's yeah. where it starts for us. We go and we just pick it up, and we go home and we cook it. Yeah. So there's a whole world that takes place before then that people are a bit ignorant of. So yeah. talk to me a little bit. Obviously, if you read the newspapers, you know a lot about the economy, you know, of farmers, and you know about trade, and you know, but but we just know a bit about that. That tell me a little bit about the economy, the economics of agriculture. Well, it. Uh uh, agriculture touches so many people in so many ways, uh, especially from an economic standpoint. Um, you know, you come to shows like this, you come to the machinery show in Louisville, the gin show in Memphis, and you just walk around and you see the number of people that agricultural impacts, uh, not only from a production level, but a service-led level as well. Uh, it's huge. It's huge, and especially here in the state of Tennessee as well. Uh, but from an economic standpoint, uh, we feed a lot of people, uh, and everybody plays a part in that, right? Even from the, uh, the person who helps provide the financial services like we do at Farm Credit to the input suppliers, uh, to the equipment dealers, uh, just so many people play a part. Uh, in that mission of, of feeding people. And, and we've, been, we've been talking to a lot of farmers um, working on this exhibit, and when we ask them you know, about the skills that are needed for the next generation of farmers, the, one of the most important is business. Yes. You know, yeah. So I think there's been a real transition. You know, my, my grandparents were farmers, right. and so you know, I know they, didn't, they barely got out of the eighth grade. <laughs> they were very smart, but they didn't have a lot of uh, economic um, right. education. Are you seeing a lot of uh, the farmers that are coming to you do have more of the business skills than the previous generation? Uh, yeah, the majority do, and there's a, there's a strong hunger uh, and thirst for that knowledge. Um, and we try to meet that the best that we can. Uh, even from a one-on-one -on -one standpoint uh, with our producers and our members, uh, each year we try to get together and uh, create new financials and, and, and look and talk about where you're going, strategies, uh, and look at scenarios of, well, if, if this were to happen, uh, this could occur, and you know, just kind of work through, um, I guess, different situations to help them plan and prepare for the upcoming year and five years from now and 10 years from now. Uh, it's just all how, do, how deep does uh, the producer want to go? And uh, we offer services for our young farmers. We have a growing forward program uh, that dives in a lot of the educational components that you're talking about. 
to help improve and get better as well. It seems to me, maybe it's a misperception, but most farmers are farming the land that their father farmed, that their grandfather farmed. Are you seeing many people that are, you know, raised in a urban community in Chicago who suddenly decide, you know, hey, we, I want to be a farmer, or is, is that happen? Uh, in the in the large production scale, uh, I'm not seeing that much. I've seen a few, mm-hmm. uh, but we're seeing a lot in the urban ag uh, production setting. Because it as takes well. a lot of investment, a lot of capital, a lot of investment, farming. a lot of risk. Uh, just yeah, the strong. You had to have a strong financial position yeah. uh, to get in and take those kind of risks today. And so, for sure. so, so for folks who are not farmers at all, um, mm-hmm. what? What typically walk me through, let's just say that my grandfather and my father were farmers and now I'm farming that land, you know, walk me through a little bit of what my relationship is with you as a professional. Um, so hopefully several different areas as well, you know, from a relationship standpoint, uh, we would really like to be that person that when harvest is finished, uh, the producers reaching out to say, hey, uh, let's get together and let's start thinking about what's the end of 2019. Let's think about 2020. Uh, let's start capturing some break-even uh, scenarios, looking at the ratios, thinking through uh, options and alternatives for uh, things that we can do to uh, be successful in the upcoming year. Uh, at the end of the year, we like to capture year-end financial information to really capture how did 2019 go uh, if we have the information, go back and look and say, how did that correlate to the projection and the break-even that we completed at the end of 2018 as well? And I think that's one, one difference that uh, is probably now is data is such an important part of farmers' planning. You know, they're recording data, their equipment's picking up data, and so there's a lot more information that they can use now that my grandparents didn't have. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, the management side and the skills and uh, the tools that are available to increase productivity and efficiencies, uh, it continues to get bigger and bigger. Uh, now, do you, do you find that uh, some of the smaller farms, I know you know you read every day, people, we're not going to farm anymore, they're getting out of the business, but they're selling their farms to other farmers who are you know, farming more and probably more sustainably? Is that what you're finding? Um, That's my perception. So you're here to clear those up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel sorry for anybody listening to this podcast. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we're seeing more consolidation. Uh, uh, there are producers who are coming in and who have realized, hey, you know, uh, I just can't do this on the scale of efficiencies. They may have other off-farm income or they have full-time jobs and you know some are just realizing hey I may be better off just to rent my ground uh, sell sell my equipment or you know thinking of different strategies that may be partnering with another farmer who's doing it full-time as well um, yeah things are changing uh, as they should and uh, uh, looking at things from a different approach because I mean margins are significantly tighter than they were six or seven years ago. Right. So, uh, yeah, everybody's thinking of things differently and how can they improve and be better because the bottom line is it's a business. Right, right. And uh, when you sit down at the end of the year and you look at your financial position and uh, we're going backwards, uh, at some point it may be time to stop and think, 
you know, is there a different approach that we could take? So. And I think technology has impacted agriculture. I know that for me, years ago, I worked in the music business and then I worked in journalism. And so I happen to have been in those businesses when they were just turned on their ear, you know, where <laughs> yeah. just everything changed. And so I see a lot of that same kind of uh, all those same implications from technology and from all the things you're able to do. But those things do cost a they, lot of money. They have a cost and... Uh, you know, you really have to sit and weigh the cost and the return and what the benefit of those things are uh, and determining is that something that I want to implement in my operation. You know, Pete Nelson at Ag Launch, I, I love going to his events because uh, mm -hmm. it's just, it's so much forward thinking and so far ahead. Sometimes uh, I'll, I'll leave his meetings or their conferences and just kind of feel like a dinosaur a little bit because they're so far out there thinking about what's what's the next thing and what can we do to improve productivity, sustainability, uh, all those things that are out there where a farmer could potentially capitalize on and uh, generate additional income or uh, reduce expenses. So a lot yeah, of things are happening. It, Pete's working with us on this exhibit that we're working yeah. on, um, and I have to uh, like pay really hard attention when he's talking because, man, he's – off and running. Oh, yeah. yeah he's, wide open. He's walking on the, he's writing wide it on open. the whiteboard yeah. before we yeah. even hardly start. So, yeah. yeah, it's, and it is fascinating that the uh, opportunities that exist just like in those other industries. That's right. You know, that's right. It's, it's the future. What, what do you, what do you think the future of agriculture is going to be like? What does it look like? Um, man, um, I do, I mean, you know, this is just the thoughts of Andrew Melton, right? Sure. So uh, I think we'll continue to see uh, additional consolidation. Uh, I think we'll see more uh, partnering and collaboration between producers together to uh, improve efficiencies with equipment and utilization. And um, I think there we'll continue to see um, some opportunities arise from uh potentially ways to profit or differentiate yourself uh, from, uh, I guess, some sustainability or uh, even the global warming things. You know, there may be some things where uh, we can uh, work to make that a um, opportunity uh, mm -hmm. instead of a threat right? Uh, to try to uh, improve and uh, uh, generate additional income from that standpoint. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. And then, um, obviously, equipment is uh, the equipment Huge. is changing so fast. That's it, right. We'll have uh, robotic tractors. I know some farmers tell me they program their tractor before they even get out of bed using their phone. So I know that's that's rapidly changing. Yeah, but that yeah. too takes an investment. Yeah, that's and, right. That's right. And uh, just having a good understanding of uh, how all that plays into the operation. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it'd be pretty awesome if you could run a tractor at 12 o'clock at night and it go back and recharge itself and keep working at night. Well, uh, that's that's equipment utilization to the max, right? Well, and, so. and you know, because I live in, an, in a uh, very rural environment now, I'm seeing tractors out there when it's getting dark and on Facebook, I'm seeing them on Sunday while everybody else is watching uh -huh. games. They're watching the games from their combines. And, you know, it is a business that, you know, it's feast or famine. That's you right. gotta, you gotta, you know, you gotta uh, make hay while the sun is shining, That's as right. they say. It's all about timing, right? Yeah. Get in, yeah. get it out and 
get it planted and when you got the opportunity, you've got to capitalize on it. And so, That's what correct. do you do here at this at this uh, annual meeting? Yeah, so we have a, a lot of members uh, here as well. You know, we're a cooperative in uh, the same structure of Farm Bureau for insurance and what they're trying to capture uh, and, and uh, within their mission. Uh, we try to do the same from the financial and uh, from the lending side as well. So, uh, a lot of members of the uh, Farm Bureau are members of Farm Credit as well. So. Just a great opportunity for us to come out here, and uh, we collaborate with Farm Bureau and uh, Farmers Co-op on shooting hunger as well, and uh, you know, just kind of a day to just deepen relationships. Yeah, and, uh, check in with everybody. Harvest is the finish for most, and uh, just see how things are going. And uh, it's just a good day here. So yeah, well, thank you for being here. It's nice to have a fellow University of Memphis alumni yeah. here. Yeah. Um, it's uh, interesting to hear about the business aspect. Yeah, about yeah. Scott, thank you for what y'all are doing. Uh, bet. I'm excited to, for the things that are going to come in the fall as well. So. Yeah, thank you very yeah, much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Real Foot Forward. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you may be listening. Plan your own adventure to see beyond at Discovery Park of America by visiting discoveryparkofamerica.com. Be sure to also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for the latest updates.